world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority. The list goes on and on. If you've got a question about anything at all, pick up the phone, give me a call. We're going to get to those calls in just a little bit. A couple things. Um, Obviously, I've been following uh, technology and all the money flooding into the trucking sector. It's pretty exciting. A lot happening with rates right now. Looks like we're heading into the perfect storm of rates for 2018. Should be a really exciting year to be in trucking. I'm looking forward to it. Lots and lots of things feeding into that. The economy is heating up. We could be getting t- big tax breaks that could also spur more economic development. We have all the rebuilding from massive storms and earthquakes going on. We've got the ELD mandate. We've got driver turnover starting to creep up again. Everything in the news right now points to much higher spot market rates in 2018. That's really good news for the small carrier owner-operator. The only thing we need now is $4 fuel. It would just be an amazing year in 2018. So that's my Christmas wish. If somebody can send that to me, I'd appreciate it. Um, 4 to $5 fuel, I think, would be awesome right now. Um, it'll weed out the, the bottom... 10% of the market, and with the ELD mandate and high fuel prices, we could weed out a lot of the bottom, which would also work to drive rates up. That would be a good thing for the real business owners in the industry that, that understand supply and demand, understand uh, serving your customer, and understand how to find and negotiate better rates. That's I'm all for that. Um, Speaking of that, along the same lines, I've really been doing a lot of research and following all of the new technology. Uh, Companies like Uber, Convoy, um, there's a bunch of them. I posted about another new one I saw today, uh, first time I've seen it. They're taking a slightly different approach. So uh, Uber and Convoy, the two big names that we thought might replace the broker, and actually they are the broker. They're just brokers with very good technology. And I love what they're doing in some cases. I have a problem with Uber because of all the, of their investment into autonomous technology. I think that works against the best interest of owner-operators and drivers. So they're big. They're going to change the industry doesn't mean I have to support them. So um, I am working not officially as a partnership with Convoy right now, but I have um, visited with Convoy. Um, I did an interview of the founder and CEO a couple weeks ago, and we are exploring some ideas on the technology side. That's uh, about all I can say on that right now, but we may even be looking for some possible beta testers for some ideas we have. Um, so I, 
I, if anybody of the companies I've I've watched so far that are in that segment using technology to improve the freight market, uh, I like Convoy's model. I like their company culture. Uh, I'm not completely convinced that I would be willing to partner with them, but we're exploring it. Um, I'm learning a lot. They are... Um, asking me to help them understand the owner-operator market better. They do want to serve that small carrier owner-operator market, so that's initially why they approached me. Um, And through the process of learning about their company and them learning about mine, we came up with some ideas that we might possibly be able to uh, work on moving forward. So I'll keep you informed on that. The... um, the company that uh, I posted about today on Facebook is called Load Express. They are basically a freight auction and matching marketplace. I am not a big fan of these kinds of services. Think of uh, Uship, eBay. Auction sites are excellent for the people buying the product or service. In this case, the shipper. They're buying the product or service. Auction sites are traditionally not so great for people selling the product or service, the carrier, owner-operator, because the auction sites, it's a race to the bottom. It, it, I mean, look at what happens with ship. So I, I'm not a big fan of this, but I posted it saying, you know, here's another startup looking to replace the broker. And um, then I asked the question, what do you think? Would the industry be better with services like this and no brokers? One of the responses I got, I, I, I say shocked me, but nothing much shocks me anymore. Um, somebody said, yes, I can't wait till the brokers go out of business or they're regulated to the point where they can only charge enough to buy the necessities. And then he made a comment like they should be filling out, you know, something with a, a Bic pen instead of a Mont Blanc pen. I find that comment really, really disturbing coming from somebody who is a business owner. Isn't the American dream to own your own business? Isn't that what many of us strive for? I've been in business my entire life. I I was self-employed when I was 16, painting cars. I opened a gym when I was 19. I bought my first truck when I was 22. I've owned, I I love starting businesses. I've owned several of them. I've sold a couple. Uh, My trucking company. I love business. I think that's what this country is founded on. Small business, the American dream. And to think that somebody in business has the attitude that because I don't like your business for whatever reason, I want you to be regulated to the point where you can't afford anything except the necessities. And my response to that is, are you willing to let the government set your rates? If you want them to set a a broker rate, are you also willing to let them set your rate? I'm certainly not. I don't want the government anywhere near money in business, setting rates. Now, clearly, the government has regulations on every business, but not financial regulations, 
financial regulations are pretty rare. You do tend to see them in, let's say, alcohol sales. They can set a minimum that you're allowed to sell alcohol for. I, I don't even agree with that, but that happens. I don't want to see that expand anywhere else. I, I, I never understand the mentality of, yes, regulate the brokers, make it so they can only charge a certain amount. They are a business just like you and I. If you don't like their business, then don't use them. That is your choice. You could at least do a carrier. You could go direct to the customer yourself and compete with the broker. But to, to stand there and say you want to see them regulated so heavy that they can only make enough money to buy the necessities. That is just un-American. It really is. That, those kind of comments or that, that thought process really disturbs me. Tell me what you think. You know, I've asked this question before. Do, we, do you really want to see the broker's rate regulated? Where the government tells them, you can only charge this much. I, I don't. Let them charge whatever the market will bear. And if you don't like their service or their rate, and remember, we, we even think about this backwards. You are the service provider to the broker, not the other way around. You're not buying service from the broker. They're buying service from you. Set your own price if you don't like their pricing. That's what you should be doing anyway. It's your business. You should be setting the price. Then people will, every time I mention that, people will say, but they won't pay it. Well, that's business. I I could open up a hamburger stand here in town and try to charge $35 for a hamburger But if nobody buys it, I'm going to go out of business. That would tell me that my pricing model is incorrect. If the customer is not willing to pay the price you think your service is worth, it's your job to sell it. I've got to get to a break. We'll come right back. We're going to get to your calls and questions. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rothford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The number, nope, the website, letstruck.com. 
Phone lines are full. We're going to get right to them. We are off to Mississippi. Alex, welcome to the program. Hi, Mr. Kevin. How are you doing? Doing good. What can I help you with today? Yeah, I have a question, like one or two questions about, uh, okay, I'm an owner-operator, and my truck needs a parking. So I want to buy land and then put metal building on it. So, for example, that's going to cost me 25000 land, 25000 for the building, and it's going to be shop for my truck to work on it. So $50,000. Can I use my taxable income to buy that property, and that way my taxable income is going to be 50000 less? No. That's the question number one. No. no. Let, let's start with why. Here's how the IRS looks at this. The land is not deductible at all because the IRS considers the land will never devalue. So they won't let you deduct the cost of land, period. The building, they'll let you deduct that, but believe it or not, a commercial building is depreciated in 39 years. You're going to get to write off like, you know, 700 bucks a year on that building. For, for the next 39 years. Commercial real estate is not necessarily a good deduction. Now, there, there are other ways to do this, though. Are you incorporated by chance? Not yet. Just I have a tax ID, and um, I'm going to be open LLC in Florida. But I just also, it's my second question, how you do that. Okay. So here's, here's what you need to find. You need to find a, a good... Um, accountant, a tax preparer who understands these issues, and you may or may not need a lawyer. I mean, you, you can set up a simple LLC S-Corp pretty easily, or you can pay a lawyer to do it to make sure it's done right. I, I, all I can do here is give you some ideas. I'm not going to be able to go through all the details, so you're going to need a good tax preparer to help you with this. But one of the ways to get around this problem is that you... You build the building with your personal money. You own that the land and the building personally, and then you do what's called a lease back to the corporation. So you lease this building to the corporation. That way, everything the corporation pays to you personally is a business deduction for the corporation you will have to show it as personal rental income, but then you can use the depreciation to offset some of that, and you're saving the Social Security and Medicare tax. So it's a better solution than just taking that long, slow depreciation. The other thing I would say, I don't know how fast you were thinking about doing this, I would hold off until we hear what the, the details of the new tax plan. I mean, the, the Trump and, and his administration are claiming we should have a new tax plan by the end of this year, and he's looking to make some pretty significant changes in depreciation, and it looks very business-friendly. So I, I think I would hold off until they either say, yes, we have a plan, and here it is, or no, we don't have a plan. I, we just don't know what's going to happen yet. Okay, so I understand. So I need to buy the land on my personal money, and then I put the building on it. And then when that new law came in effect, 
then see how everything works, and then maybe open LLC, and then uh, kind of rented this building to my company, to the LLC, that way, right? Yes. It, yeah, and again, I'm just giving you the big picture. I want you to work with a good tax preparer before you start spending any money so that this gets done right. And everything I just said could change with the new tax law changes. So that's why I'm saying you might just want to hold off a little bit before you do anything unless you just absolutely need the building right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking buy the land right now, pay it off, and then maybe next year put the building on it, but use all my personal money. Okay. And then see how it goes and then kind of rent it out, this building, to my company. Okay, I see. That's, okay, that's how it works. Also, I have a question about uh, a full tanker, cryogenic CO2, and, and, and the tanker, you know, on the, to unload and load the liquid, we use pump. It's a diesel motor, it's, and it's in a box, and it's a pretty big flat box. I think it's taking my fuel mileage down a little bit, and I'm thinking if I'm going to buy those fenders goes, you know, on your uh, mud flaps on the truck, and some other stuff, that will improve my fuel mileage or it's not yes. going to help anything because it's kind of open everything and just a big box in the middle. Now, the, the good thing about aerodynamic improvements is no matter how ugly our aerodynamics are, there's probably something we can do that's going to work. So when we talk about products like air tabs and flow below, those are aerodynamic improvements that work virtually across the board. That's why we we recommend those, because they work so well. Uh, So even if you have some aerodynamic problems, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to fix other problems. You can. Let's go to Mississippi. John, welcome to the program. Hello. Yes, how you doing today? Doing good. What can I help you with today? Uh, I got an analysis, all analysis there. All right, let's take a look at this here. So we've got an ISX. What year is it? Uh, it's a 13. And about 611,000 miles on the engine and about 26,000 on the oil, correct? Yes. Okay, so a couple interesting things. No fuel dilution, no soot. This engine's running really well. It's tuned good, it's running well. The base number is is dropped way down, and that's actually what's flagging your sample at a level two. But I've talked about this a little in the past. The the labs are going to have to change their base readings and warnings because these new oils, the new API classifications, for some reason, and and I've done a bunch of research on this. I've read. We know it's going to happen And according to the research, they say, don't worry about it. Those numbers are not a problem the way they used to be. For some reason, these new APIs, the base drops on them really quickly. And when I first read the article, I thought, well, I wonder how quickly. And then immediately started seeing results like this, where, you know, this oil probably started with a base of at least 10 or 12, and you're already down under three. That would, under the old... rules, we would say you're down to 25% of your original. It's time to change the oil. Uh, But I'm telling people, don't do that. 
I think we're going to have to adjust all our readings. So what we look at is is that low base causing any other problems. Your oil's a little oxidized. I think it's probably that same issue. So virtually everything in the sample looks exactly what we would want to see. The potassium climbed a little bit, up to 24, but sodium is still pretty low, so that might just be an anomaly of some kind. Um, Nothing to worry about right now. I would watch your coolant levels, and I would just keep sampling, but this sample looks fine. Okay, I do got uh, cold cold leaks, Um, trying to get some uh, lines changed out. But the other question I had on this sample was the iron. You know, uh, Bruce is always saying that he don't want to see any iron over about 12 or 15. Well, let me... Yeah, we, we have to look at why Bruce thinks that way. Not to say that he's wrong, but he's he's not as current as he could be on this topic. And I, I've i talked with him. I don't think he's going to change his mind. Bruce is, you know, going back to his high-performance roots. And if you think back to when we were building, you know, high-horsepower mechanical engines, you know, you put a lot of money into that engine. Back then, an oil change was dirt cheap. You, you, most of the time, you did them yourself. They didn't cost that much. And, and the attitude was, well, I'd rather waste some money on oil than, you know, lose an engine. So at a 10,000-mile oil change, which is what we did, wanting to keep your iron under 10 or 12, it, that would be correct. But if you go to a 25,000-mile oil change, then allowing your oil to go up to 25 would be no big deal. We will always continue to get iron in the oil. It is a wear metal. It's going to wear. We don't want to see it spike. We don't want to see it run up really high. The general rule of thumb that I use is for every 1,000 miles you put on the oil, you could add one point to your iron. So at 10,000 miles, having iron at 10 is normal. At 25,000 miles, having iron at 25 is normal. At 100,000 miles... We probably wouldn't see a hundred. It does tend to slow down. But iron is always going to build up. So Bruce is just looking at the iron number from a, a different perspective. And he's not taking into account the extra miles on the oil and the fact that we have a bypass system on there. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We are off to Tennessee. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. How's it going today? Good. What's on your mind? I'm just out here trying to avoid all these protests. Man. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, buddy. I saw them, all those guys out there protesting in California there Friday and I just wish there was a flag that those guys could have put up or something so we could have seen how many of them were trapped <laughs> behind the few that were actually protesting. I, I know a lot of guys that run out there, and I know that that big line of trucks, there were probably seven or eight protesters and 200 trucks trapped because... They they couldn't they couldn't get out of it, and these protests it, it makes me laugh because most of the guys that are that are talking them up they can't carry on a, a conversation without one getting vulgar, without two just insulting everybody, and three they show their ignorance on so many factors that it's it's not even but they don't represent. 90 percent of the people i know yeah i just when i saw that the other day i i I showed lorraine i said but look at this i said how many of those guys you think are trapped and she said most of them and i said exactly now here's another thing because i i agree with everything you said there i don't even know what i could add to that you said it well i agree this isn't a big deal but knowing where they were kind of doing this, I'd be curious to know, be curious to know why they didn't do it on I-5. For one, I think you'd get more exposure if that's what you're looking for. But two, 99 is, is, you know, it's not my favorite place to to run a truck or a long vehicle through. The damn ramps are so short. Right, right. That's it. And once you get over there, you're trapped because most of right. the roads that go back and forth east and west, you can't run. I, so I, they knew what they were doing, and they knew that they would have everybody's – everybody was captured behind them. So that's the way I saw it. Most of the people I talked to, that's the way they saw it. Yeah, so here's, here's the other thing. Just, you know – we, we have to look at what we're trying to accomplish. I keep asking these groups a couple basic questions, and I can't get a straight answer from anybody. It seems to me, like, before you do anything, I mean, it's the model we use here. It's the model I use on business in my life. Before I do anything, what is it that I am trying to accomplish you know, it, it's the lesson I talk. Exactly. Ab- it's the lesson I talk about all the time from the Seven Habits, the the habit of begin with the end in mind. So before I start, I want to think about the end. What do I want to see happen? So I ask these groups: if you're protesting, if you're going out into the public to to have these demonstrations, protests, strikes, whatever you want to call them, what are you trying to accomplish? I get a lot of general answers. I want the government out of my business. 
Well, come on. You're going to have to get a little more specific than that. Well, we don't like all these regulations. Well, nobody does. You're going to have to get a little more specific than that. Well, we want the ELD mandate thrown out. Well, okay, at least we have something specific now because from your protest, I have a hard time figuring out exactly what you're trying to do, and I'm in the industry. So how is the public supposed to know what's going on? So first, what are you trying to accomplish? Second, who are you trying to influence? Who specifically? I have to believe if you're doing these public protests, you're trying to influence the public. Well, you're not going to influence them in a very positive manner by blocking traffic. Isn't this the same thing we all complain about when the protesters stand in the road and try to block us? Uh-oh, I lost Steve. That was a long diatribe there, but, uh, well, everybody else got to hear it anyway. Um, let's go to Missouri. Karen, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. I have my own authority, and I uh, know on my cab card I can see the Canadian provinces listed on there, but besides getting a, a, a speed route, reduced their restrictor on my truck. Is there anything, what else do I need to be able to run Canada Freight? Wow. You know, I I try to pride myself on being able to answer most questions, but the one that I admit right off the bat I stay away from is compliance. Um, I know know obviously the basics of compliance in this industry. I know most of the rules. When it gets down to the details, especially on some of the more fringe questions, a lot of very few um, small U.S.-based carriers bother with Canadian freight. Um, so it, it, I, I've never been asked that question before, and the honest answer is I have no clue. Um, I, I don't know what else is required. So um, we could certainly go look. That's normally what I do. If I can't answer a question, I usually go look it up, and that way I learn something too. Um, you know, Dale Howard is kind of our residence. Uh, you know that. I was just going to say, where do we look for stuff like that? This can be a little challenging, honestly, because anytime we deal with the government, and this is why I, I don't do a lot of research into this. The problem I find with the government is if I want to learn something about math, I can go learn about it. If I want to learn about you know almost anything, I can go read. The problem with the government is because there are so many different agencies it can be very confusing. I, it happens to me all the time with just the IRS, just one agency. I'll read something about a rule and think, oh, well, I've got that. Except you also have to know that there's three other publications you have to go read about that rule. And if you don't know that they're even there, you would think you know everything you need to know. And I see this all the time with government. You go read in one place, you go, oh, I got this. To go to Canada, I need this, this, and this. Well, then you find out, oh, but wait a minute, there's another agency that you didn't even know existed. So I I get very frustrated trying to, and it just takes way too much of my time. So um, I leave compliance to the people that like to go read about compliance. I I don't know um, other than continuing to ask questions. Um, Like I said, maybe we can get Dale Howard on. Maybe he knows. You could also... Um, there are lots of companies that help people get their authority. 
they would most likely... I'm a member of OIDA and NASDAQ both. I would try calling both of them. This is one of those where the more people you ask, the more likely you are to get all of the correct answers, not just some. And that way, if you get different answers, then you know you got to dig even deeper. But I would think OIDA and NASTIC both would have resources that could help you with this. Okay, great. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Oklahoma. Jason, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing today? Good. What can I help you with? Uh, I've got a question on claiming per diem. Uh, I've always been a company driver, and just last year I started being a road driver at one of the LTL companies, so we go out, lay down, come back. And my taxes are super simple. I don't have any deductions, so I always just take the standard deduction. So can I claim per diem if I'm not itemizing, or is that separate? Well, no, you you have to itemize to be able to claim the per diem. The per diem is an itemized deduction on Schedule A. So are you married or single? Married. Um, so roughly your standard deduction, let's just say it's right around 12000 You have to be able to have more than $12,000 in deductions to itemize. There are drivers who do have fourteen, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 worth of per diem. It just depends on how many nights you can claim. So it's just a matter of doing the math and seeing which way works better for you. Okay, and that, that's what I thought. I just wanted to verify, and the, I, like last year, I only did it for six months, and wasn't out, you know, maybe an average of three days a week, maybe four at the most. So I don't yeah, think it would it, add up it, to be enough. Yeah, that, it, that's always been my problem, not having enough write-offs. Right, right. And and if, if the Trump tax proposal goes through, then virtually nobody will be writing um, itemized deductions, or very, very few people. Most of the itemized deductions are going away, and the standard deduction is being doubled to 24000 So uh, it, it's about to get... At that point, it would be really, really nice if all the trucking companies paid their drivers per diem. Then you'd get the double deduction. I'll, I'll be talking about that more as we get more details on the tax plan. Stick around. We've got one more segment. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. I'm going to get right back to the phones. We are off to Georgia this time. Jamil, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, what's going on? Just had a quick question for you um, about an N14 Select Plus. I was wondering, what was your opinion on that engine? That is a, a, a hard engine to beat. What year? Uh, That's a hard engine to beat. It is a rock-solid workhorse that is drop-dead simple, easy to work on, parts are common. Um, That engine probably lasts longer than any other engine I've seen. I mean, I love the Series 60. We get easily, you know, 1.3, 1.4 million miles. I, I know of two, three now N14s. That went to 1.9 million miles without an in-frame. They, they are just, it, you know, I, I always said I, I kind of ignored the N14 because I was so focused on fuel economy. Um, and I felt like I was able to get better fuel economy out of the Series 60. But it's really close. I, I have a feeling if I would have focused that much time and effort on the N14, we might have been able to do really, really close. It's not a big difference. So if you're looking at a truck with an N14, it's hard to go wrong. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, I had talked to you last week. I was telling you that I was planning on moving out west, and uh, I told you I was planning on moving out. You said you could see Washington right from your um, right from your backyard. And That's right. I told you I was looking at the truck. And the price was uh, six thousand or six five hundred, but it has an N fourteen Select. And the guy said it had a twelve seven Detroit in it. But when I looked at it, it was a Select Plus, and I was like, "Ooh, I have to ask Kevin about this before I make this purchase." <laughs> yeah, no, I I would not, I wouldn't hesitate. I mean, it, it's hard to go wrong with the you know you're risking six thousand dollars, and are you going to put some money into it? But I've I've watched people start like this make a ton of money. And the N14 is just rock solid. Okay, okay, good. I didn't know, I mean, like, with the red top, I mean, people saying red top, and I was asking the guy, like, is this what they call the red top? And he was like, he didn't know, so it, I didn't know if it was a, uh, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, it, it, either way, um, like I say, that is a, a drop-dead simple diesel engine, easy to work on. Um, and just about bulletproof, so you really can't go wrong. They're they're inexpensive to operate and reliable. Let's go to Wisconsin, Gary. Welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Say, uh, I got a question on potatoes, and I got another question after that. Since I keep dropping phone calls, but sure. Uh, my mom and dad they grow they grow their own potatoes and stuff, and you know, mods diabetic and she just won't give them up but i heard you say something about if you cook the potatoes and refrigerate them that it drops the glycemic index on it but can you reheat heat the potatoes there seems to be a lot of controversy about that i i can't seem to find a clear answer this is what's called resistant starch so the problem with like most vegetables that grow underground they, they tend to be much higher in starches, not necessarily sugars, but starch converts to sugar in our body. That's why we avoid white potatoes and um, things that are very high in starch. 
because it's virtually glucose to our body. But there was a report, and this has been well documented, that for some reason, so let's start with you cook a potato and you eat it. That starch immediately converts to glucose, happens quick, spikes your blood sugar, spikes insulin, all the things we don't want to happen. But for some reason, when you cook it and then refrigerate it, say overnight, and then the starch gets some of the starch, they say about half, but this isn't an exact science, it, it, about half of the starch gets converted to what is called resistant starch, meaning our body doesn't have the ability to digest that starch for some reason. We can't break it down after it's been cooled or, or you know, refrigerated overnight. So what happens to it then is the gut bacteria that we talk about being so important all the time, they can feed on that resistant starch, and it's actually a good thing. So it, it, it's, it, it's an interesting concept but so far, I haven't seen any really solid testing on it. Like, are there only certain starches that this works with? Or is it any starchy food? Can you reheat it? Does that, you know, make the starch digestible again? I, I, I've, I, I haven't really dug into it as, as hard as I want to yet. It's on my list. Um, so yeah. it, it's hard to say. The other I'm thing... I'm wondering, my... my, 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 my my mom, she she uh, checks her her blood sugar all the time. So I mean, I'll just have her do the test. Yeah, see what, that, she, see what she comes up with. That, that's a good way to do it because we're all individual anyway, and based on our gut bacteria. And I think that's why we don't have really good numbers or hard science on this. It hasn't been tested a lot. The um, the other thing I would say is. You know, we, we want to minimize our starches and sugars, obviously, but also what we want to do is maximize our nutrients. So I will not eat white potatoes at all. There's just very little nutrient density there, and it's high in starch. Sweet potatoes are, could be even worse glycemically, but they've got nutrients. So I do occasionally cook or eat sweet potatoes. I, I watch the quantity. The other potato that I, I eat and quite a bit lately and, and haven't noticed any um, really negative consequences are purple potatoes. They're loaded with phytonutrients. So there's actually a good brand of potato chips. So if you're looking for that one kind of little guilty pleasure, it's a little bit of a treat. But if you watch the quantity um, and when you eat it, it, it can work. It, it, Jackson's Honest is the company, and they make a purple potato chip that is fried at a very low temperature in coconut oil. So we're getting a good fat in the coconut oil. They do it at a low temperature so that we don't damage those fats. And they're purple potatoes, so they've got the phytonutrients. So that's one of my kind of, you know, guilty snacks that I keep around are those uh, really high-quality purple potato chips. Okay. So, and then the other question, if you got a quick one, is I got a, I have T-Mobile and I keep dropping my calls. So which one do I go to, AT and T or Verizon? So um, you know this changes as as the companies build out their networks. But I, I can tell you, I started paying very very close attention to this back in 2010 when we first took our show and went on the road. I had two 
um, air cards from AT&T and two from Verizon. And I also had DirecTV satellite or HughesNet, I'm sorry, HughesNet satellite uh, internet. Because we needed all the bandwidth we could get when we were trying to travel. And back then, it was a struggle. I mean, I had to test constantly. I had to plan ahead where I was going to park to do the show. The last couple of years when we go back out on the road, I still have all the same setup, um, minus the satellite. I, I dropped the satellite. And it's much, much better than it ever used to be. Now, Sprint, I had one of their cards for a while. I dropped it. It was awful. They weren't even close to the other two. Verizon literally was, you know, a couple years ago was way ahead of everybody. You know, I I used to track, like, for every 25 times I tried to get enough bandwidth to do the show, 24 out of 25 times Verizon would work. About 15 out of 25 times AT&T would work, and about 5 times out of 25 Sprint would work. It was that bad. AT&T is pretty well caught up. I mean, there are parts of the country where people will argue, and there are parts of the country where Verizon's stronger and some where AT&T is stronger, but both of them are are pretty pretty well established that you're going to get good service from either one of them. Like I said, you could argue all day. Some people are going to swear Verizon's better. If I had to pick one, I, I still think I do a little better with Verizon than I do with AT&T when I travel. But they're so close now, it's, it's hard to say. So then it comes down to, you know, customer service, uh, plans, cost, <laughs> features. You know, they're both touting their unlimited plan, which is absolutely not unlimited if you want to use a... Uh, <laughs> the, the only time it's technically unlimited is when you're using your phone to access the Internet. If you're using a hotspot or using your phone tethered, then you're not even close to unlimited. I mean, you get a couple gigs, um, and the next thing you know, you're being throttled back. So I don't consider that unlimited at all. It's very deceiving the way they market those. But it's, you know, trying to argue Verizon, you know, versus AT&T is... You know, like arguing Chevy versus Ford. Uh, It just comes down to people's personal preference now. If I had to pick one personally, I feel like I do better with Verizon still. There's the music. I'm all out of time. I've got to get out of here. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Kevin Rothberg.